Have you find yourself caught up in something bigger than you expected? Maybe something bigger than yourself? Um, I kind of feel this way about, about politics in general. It always feels like I'm, I'm, I'm caught up in it. I'm affected by it. But I, I feel much more like a pawn than a player. I'm, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, definitely feeling those situations like people are moving parts around the table that I don't have anything to do with, and yet they keep affecting what happens in my life. I think there are more things like that than we really account for. I think there are more, more moments when we are involved in bigger things than we think. Especially when you talk about the spiritual realm. You stop for a minute and you pray, right? And you, you don't really take it very seriously often. You, you're, you're about to start your lunch, or you're about to, to grab a, a quick meal somewhere, and you stop and you do this real quick sort of, thank you, Lord, for this food. Uh, it's good, great, thanks, bye. Right? And we, we, we don't recognize the, the immensity of that moment, that, that through that simple gesture, you are actually freighting a message to heaven. We're caught up in much bigger things often than we, than we regularly consider. Um, there's a, an African pro- proverb that says, when the elephants fight, the grass loses. There are big things going on. When the elephants fight, the grass loses. And I feel like most of the time, in most of these things, we're the grass. And the elephants are out there at, at it. In our church, we talk about something called the conflict of the ages or the great controversy. The idea that behind the scenes of all the stuff that we look at in the world, behind the scenes of all the trauma and trouble, behind the scenes of life and death and prayer and birth and hopes and salvation, behind the scenes of all of it, there's a battle going on between a couple of elephants who have a much, much bigger activity than we have. They're, they're going at something that really impacts us, but uh, in reality, we don't really have a lot, we don't feel like we have a lot to do with it. This is where I think stepping into this conflict with prayer changes so much. I think we lose opportunity when we don't pray into this, when we don't seek the will of God for people we know and love, when we are not asking for God to step into people's lives. And I think we need to be asking it like that. God, I'd like you to step into this situation and have your way and have your will in it. One of the most powerful prayers... In the New Testament is when Jesus is teaching the disciples to pray that one little phrase, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In heaven, there are no opponents. In heaven, there are no naysayers. In heaven, there's no different opinions. If his will was done on earth as it is in heaven, everything would be different. That is probably one of the most powerful lines that you could state, one of the most powerful prayers you could make. Lord, just let your will be done in this event, in my life, in this moment, in my family, in my friends. Let your will be done in our church as it is done in heaven. We are caught up in a big struggle between some big elephants. And I want to talk about one element, one part of that today, one little discipleship crash that we have with this one one moment when we clash into it and i think we all recognize it when it's happening when we have, when we face and struggle and battle with sin with temptation 
We need to recognize that we're engaged in this battle where the elephants are fighting and we're the grass. And when we're dealing with it, I think there are three things that I want you to remember from today. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go. Do you know that to be true? You get involved and you think it's not going to be such a big deal. It's a small thing and it just bleeds over into the rest of your life. Sin will take you farther than you really wanted to go. Number two, it will keep you longer than you wanted to stay. It will keep you in, engaged, and struggling in the battle longer than you wanted to stay. You thought it wasn't such a big deal. You thought, oh, you know, it's just a small thing. It's not really a, it's not really all that big a deal. You're tempted with it, which should be the first clue, right? If you're tempted, there's a, there's, there's something going on with this battle behind the scenes that you're now caught up in. When that temptation comes, you are engaged in the battle. You're tempted with it, and so you don't think it's a big deal, but then it grabs you, and it drags you further in than you thought it was going to do, and then it holds you there longer than you thought you were going to, and last, it almost always costs you more than you wanted to pay. In fact, I would say it always costs you more than you wanted to pay. Sin will take you further than you wanted to go. It will keep you there longer than, what, than you wanted to stay. And it will cost you more than you wanted to pay. So let, let's, let's pick this up in John chapter 5. And let's look at a story there. In John chapter 5, we have this story of Jesus coming to the pool of Bethesda. Coming to this pool where he finds some folks uh, who, are, who are waiting for a miraculous thing. Afterwards, Jesus returned to Jerusalem from one of the Jewish, for one of the Jewish holidays. This is probably Pentateuch. If you look at the context, Passover's just happened. Pentateuch is the next holiday. It's probably Pentateuch when he's there. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was a pool of Bethesda, which had five covered porches. So think about this pool. Now, the term for pool here is like swimming pool. This is not a small puddle of a pool. The term in the Greek here is like a deep pool. It's like something deep enough that if you jumped in, you could swim in it. It's a big, deep pool. What this actually is by the first century is the results of damming up one of the little valleys so that they could hold some water. It was basically just a cistern. So it would be rainwater and things like that would be channeled into it for a water supply for the city. If you know anything about Jerusalem, if you read anything about Jerusalem, you know it's, at a, it's in a situation where it's pretty arid. It's a Mediterranean climate. It's not unlike Sacramento. In fact, it has the same rainfall as Sacramento. It has basically the same temperature swing as Sacramento. So it's real. if you're accustomed to things here, that's a, a lot of what it's like in Israel, in Jerusalem in particularly. And so they were trying to capture some extra water for their use in the city, so they dammed up one of the little valleys there in the city, and it became this pool. At first it was just a little lake, and then they started you know, expanding it, and they ended up with two little lakes, and then they started building some porticos around it. And so as time went by, it became... Uh, sort of fancier and fancier until at the time of Jesus, it's taken over by crowds of sick people. So you go to the public pool and there are a bunch of sick people hanging around the public pool. They've kind of come in and taken over the place because word has spread. Word has spread that if you can get into this pool, if when the water is disturbed, you can jump into the pool, you could be healed. Now, it's interesting that this is a fairly common belief among people of the time, especially about water. 
that water had healing properties and that there were miraculous things in those waters. If you think about it, you may have heard a couple of pieces of this in in your history class where um, when Xerxes is coming to cross one of the rivers, which I don't remember right now, he sacrifices two white horses before he crosses so that the river will be kind to him. There's this idea that water has power and authority and gods dwell there and spirits dwell there. Um, In fact, when one of the Romans was crossing the, the Euphrates, he sacrificed a bull before he crossed the Euphrates. It was a common understanding, a common belief. And so these people are gathering in sort of the culture understanding of the day, it's really not true. You're not getting healed by a water being disturbed. Uh, you're, but, but we'll carry on with this in just a minute. The crowds of sick, pe- sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. So here's my picture. You go to a resort hotel. They have a pool. And around the pool, they have these really sweet cabanas to keep you out of the sun. It's always interesting to me. You go to sunny places and stay in the shade as much as possible if you're my skin tone. So why did you go to the sunny place to begin with? Stay in the shade where you belong, white boy. Um, but they, 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 they put these cabanas out there and you go out to sit by the pool and the cabanas are full of the blind, the lame, various sicknesses and oozing sores. And you're like, ah, oh, man, that kind of ruins my pool experience. Well, think about this had grown into a place where people gathered around the pool. But as this, this reputation for healing came, the sick sort of took over. And remember how they feel about sickness. You're unclean when you're sick, so you don't want to mingle with these people. So the idea here is that pretty much the sick people have taken the place over. And they're the only ones really hanging out there right now. Now, we know this reputation carries beyond the Jewish culture of the day because when, after the Romans sack Jerusalem and destroy everything, they actually build a hospital at this place, a, sort of a hospital at this place, to, to be a place of healing. So it carries forward with them. One of the men lying there had been sick 38 years. Now, stop and consider. 38 years, nearly four decades. You're sick. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been sick for very long. I am a terrible sick person. I do okay in a day or two, but let this thing linger on for a week or so, and I start to get cranky and irritable, and I don't, I'm not, probably not good to be around. You'd have to ask my wife because I'm around me all the time. And, and as, you, as you start dealing with all of those things, you get, you, as the sickness hangs on, it becomes more difficult to stay chipper about it or even hopeful with it. This guy's been sick for 38 years. I mean, that's probably more than a, a half of the population in here. 38 years he's been sick. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time. So stop. Jesus sees this man by the pool and divinely understands who he's dealing with. There are a bunch of sick people by the pool. Lots of them. Why didn't Jesus just walk through, snap his fingers, look up to heaven and say, Everybody up! Go home. Doesn't that seem like the thing you would do? If you have this kind of authority, doesn't that, doesn't that seem what's go, like what you should be doing? But maybe this is the first clue that what's going on here is not a simple healing. That what's going on here 
may have some elephants fighting in the background. But what's going on here may have a dynamic that's deeper and more significant than what just we're seeing on the surface. Jesus seems to go step into this place and pick out this person. This man's been sick for 38 years. One of the interesting things about this is that in the time, in the day, 40 years was considered a lifetime. So this guy's been sick for what most people would consider almost an entire lifetime. So now imagine you've got the elephants fighting in the background, and the elephants are fighting in the background, and one of the questions is, what is the authority and power of Jesus? What is the authority and power of God in this man and through this man? And so as he steps into this situation, he picks out somebody who everybody knows has been sick for a long time. In fact, he's been sick so long that everybody thinks it's just, he's just a goner. There's no hope. In fact, he's pretty hopeless himself. And as Jesus steps into that situation, he has one more question left. He finds the person. The person, the person is clear. It's, that's the guy we're going to talk to. But then he turns to the person and he says, would you like to get well? Now, I've often looked at this and thought, what a dumb question. Have you ever done that? I, I, I don't know if you guys talk to your Bible like I do. I, I see some of the stuff and I, I just shrug my shoulders and say, what a dumb question. Of course he wants to get well. He's sitting by the pool trying to get well every day. But sometimes we get into a routine of sickness, especially if you've been sick for a long time. You get into a routine of brokenness especially if you've been broken for a long time. You know we get into a routine of sins that, that, that take us down because we've been doing it for a long time. You know what I mean? Just because we practice it for a long time, it seems to get a better hold on us. And we, we can't seem to get away from it because it seems more normal than not. So Jesus steps into the guy's life and he asks the question, do you really want to be well? I know you're hanging out here at the pool every day with your fellow uh, decrepit, die, blind, lame, and broken people and you guys chat and you, you play pinochle and you know, do you really want to leave? Do you really want to break this party up that you've been going to every day? I mean, people take care of you. They haul you around. Your family and friends feed you, clean up after you. I mean, you're kind of like an infant. Do you really want to stop this? You've got a pretty good gig going on. The underlying all of the question is there's some changes going to take place in this guy's life. Tomorrow, people are going to expect things of him that they don't expect of him today. If this change takes place, people are going to expect something different of him tomorrow. This is one of the real, the, the real interesting dynamics around baptism. When you publicly become, declare yourself in baptism, people expect something different from you the next day. It's interesting because you've been going along this path. People will watch you and they say, oh, yeah, I, I can see it. You know, uh, Janice is moving. She's, her life is improving. I can see her walk with Jesus. And she's been studying with so-and-so. And you kind of watch and it's like, this is really cool. And then Janice gets baptized and you go, okay, now, Janice, you're in. Behave like you're in. Something's going to change in this man's life if he says yes to Jesus. You can never remain static when you say yes to Jesus. You can, your life will never remain static when you say yes to Jesus. Because things are always going to change. They're going to change for the better. Though you may not always recognize it as better. Because you are still caught up in a battle between two elephants and you are the grass. You may not always recognize it as better. But it's going to be better. And it's going to be a change. So here's this man. Jesus says, do you really want to get well? I can't. Ever said I can't? 
In my family, there's a phrase. Can't died at the fence corner before your great-grandmother was born. Try that on your kids. It probably confused me for at least a decade before I started realizing what they were saying to me. I can't. Can't die died on a fence cor- at the fence corner before your grandmother, great-grandmother was born. When you're seven, that doesn't really click very well. But I began to understand as time went by that can't was not an appropriate answer. I can't. Man says, it's impossible for me to get well. I can't make this happen on my own. The sick man said, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. That's how you get well around here. You've got to get in the water. When the water's moving in the right, right do- time, certain bubbles or certain things happen, you've got to get somebody to throw you in the water. I wonder if anybody sitting around that pool had ever seen anyone healed. Or was the rumor just so thick that they believed it could happen whether they'd ever seen it or not? I wonder if they'd ever actually seen anyone make it into the pool in time, or did it always, was it always ruined because two people got in the pool at the same time? Ah! Now God can't decide who to heal. One of you guys has to be second. You can't both get in there. It's the same. Did, did they just have reasons? Did they sort of make up excuses for why they weren't getting healed? Because, frankly, this is poppycock. You pull, jumping in the water because some angel's stirring it with his finger. Come on. One of the interesting things here is that Jesus doesn't say, you really believe that if you jump in the water... When it bubbles, you're going to get better. Have you ever seen that happen? You've been here a long time. Jesus doesn't confront him on his superstitions. He bypasses them altogether. He goes right to the effectiveness of his own calling. Someone else always gets in ahead of me. So Jesus told him, stand up. This is another crazy statement. The man obviously is unable to do this. And yet, Jesus says, do you want to be healed? The guy says, I can't. People always get in there before me. He doesn't even say yes, you realize. Jesus says, no, can't, died at the fence corner before your great-grandmother was born. Stand up. Pick up your mat and walk. Jesus asks him to do the impossible. Here's another reason to believe there's more going on here than meets the eye. When Jesus steps into your life and asks you to do the impossible, it is always going to be empowered by the only one who is capable of doing what is impossible. That's why I say we should be praying for the building. We should be saying, hey, Lord, I know that, that, that public servants are not always speedy. I know that they're getting paid whether they get it done or not. But could you push through the plans for our building at a time when your will will be done on earth in this situation with our building as it is in heaven? Because God doesn't care if you're a public servant and you're getting paid by the hour. God just cares that his stuff gets done. And so he moves things forward in that elephant fight that you and I didn't even realize were happening. You ever seen somebody get better miraculously? I have. 
I have prayed with people who've gotten better miraculously. That is not on me. Because I know I don't have that skill set. But there's a God in heaven. And He's real and He's powerful. And He steps into these situations. Not always. Otherwise, every time I'd pray for somebody, they'd get healed. That, that would be cool. Then I would probably think I was on me. And that wouldn't be cool at all. But we obviously can see that God has been doing this through the centuries. And we hear the stories that somewhere in the back scenes of this planet, miraculous things can be, can be brought forth. Jesus wins the elephant battle this day and the man decides, okay, I'm going to stand up. Now I wonder what the crowd around him is thinking right now. Because we forget that there's a bunch of other people around him, right? So what are the other people thinking? The guy who's always laid next to him. Frank, the friend who lays next to him and plays pinochle. His pinochle buddy. He's asking you to stand up. That's just the stupidest thing you've ever heard. Why would you want to? It's just going to be embarrassing. You're going to try to stand up and nobody's going to... That's a dumb idea. Don't even do that. Don't even try that. Be careful who you hang around with because a lot of times your friends are shackling the will of God in your life to their doubts. A lot of times your friends are shackling the will of God in your life to their doubts. Be careful about that. Be careful about that. Get up. Just stand up. Take your mat and go home. Something happens in the man. And he puts what his, his inability in the hands of God's ability. And he stands up. He puts his inability in the hands of God's ability and then he stands up. He takes his will. It's all he has. His desire, his will, his interest in being healed. He puts his will into the hands of God and he stands up. Really. Seriously. That's what happened. That is still what happens. That is still what happens. The weak, the broken, the, the lame, all of us join that, that tiny little bit of ourselves that is a will to do something different, to have a different walk, to change the future, to be different tomorrow than I am today. And we take that little bit of our brokenness, our inability, the, the recognition we have that we can't do this, and we take that little bit of our inability and we, we by our will, decide to engage God with it and we place it in His hand and we stand up. And crazy, miraculous things happen in your life. You don't recognize them because you don't see the miraculous in your own life. You know you have overcome sins in your life over the past decades that you probably didn't think you could. And you probably couldn't. Except that you put that little bit of your inability in the hands of His ability and with your will united with Him, you stood up. You get what I'm saying? He rolled up his sleeping mat and he began walking. I love the understatement of Scripture. Scripture does this all the time. The man stood up. He didn't yell, yippee. 
He didn't smile. He stoically rolled up his mat, tucked it under his arm, tipped his derby hat, and walked off. Isn't that the picture you get from this? Always understated. These things are always understated. We have only one or two places where the Bible says what I think happens every time. There's one where Peter and John are going into the temple and they meet the man. He says, they say, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto you. Arise and walk. The Bible then says, leaping and jumping and praising God, they went into the temple together. I think that's what happens every single time. Leaping and jumping and praising God. He tucked his mat under his arm and went home. Bouncing through the streets, people couldn't believe it. What's wrong with you? Well, do you know who I am? 38 years I've laid there playing pinochle next to Frank. And today Jesus said, get up. And I went up. And here I am. And bouncing along all the way home. Making such a scene that if you read the rest of the story, you find the, the Pharisees and scribes grab this guy and say, hey, what are you doing? You're carrying that mat on the Sabbath. And why are you so happy anyway? You're not supposed to be happy today. I think you were doing your delight on my holy day. Stop it. That's kind of what's going on with the rest of the story. You see, when the, when the miraculous and powerful move of God comes on and He wins, and when He pushes back, the devil always pushes back against Him. And so this conflict goes on, and this man's caught up in it over the next uh, few verses. I'm skipping some. The man did not know that it was Jesus who had talked to him. Because they were asking, who did this? Who did this? Who told you to roll up your mat? What are you doing? Settle down. Quit bouncing around. Quit praising God. You're disturbing the peace. The band didn't know. Because Jesus had just disappeared into the crowd. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. I love this too. Where did he find him? In the temple. When the man had encountered God... He wanted to worship God. The move of God in his life brought forth worship. So where did he go? He went to worship. He went to the temple. He went praising God. He didn't actually go home. I don't know if he still got his mat under his arm or if the Pharisee took it away from him. But he is now in the temple. In his rags, in his bummer clothes, he went to church. Man, you cannot put a clothing a clothing standard on church because this guy doesn't get in if you put a clothing standard on because he's not wearing the clothes for church. You know, we, we the converted put the clothing standard of the converted on the person who's coming to find out if Jesus actually exists here and we really need to stop that. We really need to recognize, man, if this guy walks in, he has to feel like he's welcome. He comes rolling into the temple and Jesus finds him in the temple. And this is the last piece I want to share with you. Now you are well, Jesus says. So stop sinning. Or something even worse may happen to you. Apparently this illness that this man had been suffering was a result of some choice that he had been making. Something he did, something that was hap had happened in his life put him in this situation. Jesus never confronts the sin at the beginning. He doesn't say, well, you're here because of X, Y, and Z, dummy. If you, if you hadn't done that, you wouldn't be here. He doesn't, go, he doesn't do what people do. People say to the, to, the, to the person in the hospital with lung cancer, you know, if you hadn't been smoking for the last 35 years, you, you wouldn't be here. Not helpful. Not helpful. Jesus doesn't act 
in that, doesn't step into that. But on the other end, when the man's life has opportunity to be transformed for the rest of his life, Jesus says, you need to change the direction you're going because the direction you're going puts you beside that pool down there. Stop sinning. You see, when this guy started, he didn't realize that sin would take him further than he wanted to go, keep him there longer than he wanted to stay, and cost him so much more than he wanted to pay. When he started, whatever this was, and, you know, pick your favorite. When he started, whatever it was that put him beside that pool, he never realized that it was going to take him further than he wanted to go, cost him more than he, or keep him longer than he wanted to stay, cost him so much more than he wanted to pay. 38 years of his life. Jesus says that what you did before brought you to this point. Don't allow your life to be crippled by that anymore. Change the direction of your life. So here's, here's the meat of the thing for us. There is this struggle. There is this battle. There is, there is temptation in all of our lives. You know you have it. And you, I know I have it. All of our lives, we all battle with temptation. The battle is bigger than us. But we're not in it alone. One of these elephants is actually fighting for the grass. One of these elephants is actually on our side. One of these elephants is saying, if you are tempted, I'm there for you. You're not, you don't have to be in this. I can help you out with this. I can get you past whatever it is. And I know if we're talking about a temptation that you've been dealing with for 38 years, if you've been struggling with one thing for the long, 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 long period of your life, and it could be, it could be dishonesty, it could be habitual practices that you know are wrong, who knows where it is? Who knows what it is? You do. I don't. God does. But in 1 Corinthians 10, he says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. First of all, you're not in this alone. Other people have had the same problem. That by itself helps. Doesn't it? To know you're not the only one this stupid. To know that you're not the only one dealing with this problem. You're, you, you and other people like you are still having the same problem. And God is faithful. A faithful means every time, right? Faithful. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. So there's an edge to the temptation. God holds back. So the elephant fight, he's holding one of them back so that he can protect you from something that would be beyond your ability to stop it. Beyond what you can, can deal with. Beyond what, what you can bear. He said, I'm holding this back. I'm not allowing anything to come into your life that is stronger than what you can bear, that is worse than what you can bear. So the I can't isn't true. Because when you are tempted, He, He, will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. As he slams into the other elephant, he makes a path for you to escape. As the conflict is going on between good and evil, between God and Satan, the battle is over every single heart on the planet, yours and mine. 
And as that battle continues over our hearts and we find ourselves facing that temptation, maybe one that's won against us again and again and again and for the last decade we've kept, we've kept bumping into it. And now finally, He steps into it and says, I got gotcha. you. You are covered by My grace. I hold you in My hand of mercy. Let me help you walk through this. Let me... Let me we have a real mist, mixed understanding of, of the problem of sin. We make everything about us. If we recognize the problem of sin that God is dealing with in our lives, is His attempt to rescue us from the pain that choice brings. That's what He's doing. He's trying to rescue us from the pain that he knows comes with it. So it was how often, how often I would have gathered you under my wings to protect you from whatever came. How often I would have gathered you like a hen gathers her chicks to bless you and protect you and keep the things that are out there from destroying and, 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 and tearing up your life. Because sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you there longer than you want to stay. And it'll cost you more than you want to pay. Where temptation is strongest, the authority and power of God is most powerful, most available to everyone and anyone. He's just trying to prevent the suffering he sees down our road. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we talk about sin, we see ourselves. When we talk about the temptation and the struggle, we recognize ourselves. Lord, I ask that you would help us to, to see in this battle that you're willing to fight for us. That if we would hand over our inability to be matched with your ability. You could do great things with things that are just tearing us up right now. We pray that as followers and disciples of Jesus, we might, each one, tomorrow, look more like Jesus than we do today. In your name we pray. Amen.